Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Today, we welcome you back to the Butterfly Forecast. Hi, Sushi Angel. Sushi. I love being with you. Sushi, I love being with you too. I really love it when we're together. And I love the idea that we've got people with us who are also happy to be together. Yeah. Can't that be one of the ways that leads to our quest for world peace? (laughs) Yes. Does it always have to be so complicated that nobody could carry it out? (laughs) No. I mean, that's, I think, why the whole premise of our podcast is the butterfly effect small flappings of wings create huge ripples through the entire earth small things are big things i agree sushi actually sushi that reminds me i have been reacquainting myself with historical figures who have given their entire lives died for the quest for world peace Mm. i'm trying to Uh, share with people, edify people's vision, just lift it up so that we were all in the same place. And one of them was the life of Mahatma Gandhi. And we are so familiar with him and his life. I love that he wasn't a perfect human being, but a human being who had his prize. I've been thinking about that phrase he left us with, be the change you want to see. And maybe we need to start really getting smaller, not bigger. Mm. If love is what binds the atoms together, then love is what we should be focusing on. So Sushi, I was wondering a lot about how can we be the change we want to see in love And the more I contemplated and looked at love and our beliefs about love, the more I wanted to have this conversation with you. Mm, I love that so much. I even, I mean, this is in my little small world, but I know, you know, I got married a couple years ago and in my marriage, there's so many things that I wanted from my partner. And I remember, I think it was actually in a conversation with you I all of a sudden my paradigm shifted where I was like, wow, what if instead I started expecting those things, I just started giving them? Mm. What if I started being the one that shared those things instead of asking for them? And it really made a huge Mm. difference. Oh my gosh, Sushi, that's so incredible uh, that you're bringing that up. It reminds me of this friend of mine. Uh, she grew up with with all that's happening in Iran right now, with with all the, the the few known murders of women there, just for the right for them to not be covered up. Really, it's about equality to choose truth for yourself. But it's made me think about friends of mine who grew up in Iran. And I had this friend, she passed very young in life, but she and her sister were best friends and they were Baha'is and they went to a rural school 
Every day, the principal or the headmaster would let them know that if they didn't behave perfectly, that death would be the penalty. They'd hand them over to the authorities. So from when they were in first grade on, that's what they lived with. And she was the younger one. Her sister was four years older. And so the two of them talked about it. And they came up with a solution to get over their fear because it was taking over their lives. And so they made a deal that if that was their fate, how about if they practice loving each other until the day they die? (laughs) And so what happened is they always did little secret nice things for each other at school. Like one would hand over half her lunch and put it in the other's locker. Or they had these little knapsacks. And then at lunchtime, she'd open up and she'd go, and then she knew what had happened. They were just practicing loving each other. And so then they started to talk about like, maybe in the middle of school, we'll get a brilliant idea. And so we should implement it there, not just wait till we're home and discussing this. Mm-hmm. So they were whispering in each other's ear every time they had an inspiration. And one day they got called to the principal's office and they said it was insubordination and that they were plotting to overthrow the government. These are elementary school girls. Wow. And so they had to face an interrogation. It was the principal, all their teachers. And then there are these sort of disciplinarians at school because there's corporal punishment. Mm -hmm. So you can be beaten. And they were terrified, just terrified. They were both shaking. And so the principal said, we demand to know what you are whispering in each other's ears. You will tell us those secrets now. (laughs) And so my friend Gazal said, well, sir, you're right. We do have secrets. Our secret is that love is the secret. (laughs) We want to practice on each other all day long so that we get so good at the whole world will follow. Mm. And they didn't get one punishment. They they were released immediately. And she said that everyone turned every shade of red in the room and they were like dismissed. You will be gotten off easy this time, but let it be a warning. But she said it made this impression on her for things that would happen in the future when she lived in other countries, when things didn't happen according to rules or justice, or they were treated unfairly. And she said all she remembered is that love is the secret. Mm. I love that. I love that too. It's like you have to put yourself in the position where you bet everything on that kind of love to experience that kind of experience. And you really have to believe it. It can't be words alone. What does that look like, though, to you? I don't know. But like when you're telling that story, it almost feels like, really? Like, but how? And it's like the only way that I can understand that that would be real is if they really, really believed it. Like Mm -hmm. they really, that was the thing that they really relied on. They didn't have anything else. Mm. And you know, actually, in that story, she lived it to the end of her life. And in that end, she was given a short time to live and they wanted to put her in the hospital. And she consulted with that sister who at the time was living in Spain and she was living here. And she said to her sister, all I want is to die in love. Would you come and be my accompaniment to death's door? I don't want to go to the hospital since I'm dying anyway. 
Mm. Your sister was like, yes, of course, I will come right away. And they allowed her small group of friends and family to visit unless they came from an agenda less than love. And then she told them, I'm sorry, you may not come back. Yeah. And so I got to be there until the very end with her sister. And I've never felt more of a celebration. I've never felt more love or witnessed more love between two sisters. That's amazing. It's so amazing. And so I keep thinking, well, is what's holding us back from practicing what you are talking about, Smushi, which you did in your marriage? Is there something holding us back from practicing it? Like, do we not believe it's true? Well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think that there's a part of us that might be operating from a place of fear where we don't believe it's true. But I also think that we're waiting for somebody else to give it to us. We're just waiting for it versus giving it and being the example of it and embodying it for ourselves. Mm. You know, it's like we talk about self-love, self-love. And the way that we look at self-love sometimes to me is so kind of superfluous, like get a massage, go to the spa. And sure, like those things are important to take care of yourself. And they may be one little small form of self-love, but it's so much greater than that. I think it's really practicing Mm. the love that you want, the love that you want to receive, the the love that you want to create in your life. Mm for yourself and others. I think it has to start with you or else you're always going to be looking outside of yourself for it. Yeah, I think, and you also bring up such a good point, which I think that it's nuanced with the concept of deserving. Yes. You know, and maybe it's that we don't think we deserve love, that kind of love. Yeah. And maybe we have assessed that others don't deserve our love. Yes, that's so true. It's like, well, do they deserve me doing all this, you know, or do I deserve this because I didn't earn it? And I think the other thing that's interesting is perhaps it's time that we know that from a physiological standpoint, every time we experience loss or disappointment, we store it in the part of our brain where all survival information is stored. Mm. So now we don't want that to happen again. So now we develop our own little private belief system. Who deserves it? Who doesn't deserve it? Who's going to waste my love? Who is going to appreciate my love, but it's a waste for me. We start that smart though, to some extent, like, don't you need to do that? Well, here's the problem. There's no room for evolution. Mm. And that part of our brain in the occiput, there's actually zero creativity. There's zero spirituality. There is zero intellect. I'm not so sure we should put our future and the future of love in the hands of like our caveman, cavewoman people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, hey, in that paradigm, a club on the head is all you need and it's true romance. Yeah, that's hard. That's, that's hard. Really hard to do because I think that you, it makes so much logical sense when you come from that 
caveman place in a way. Yeah, but do we want to forever be stuck in like Cro-Magnon era? And no. Like retribution is like, you didn't deserve it, so you'll never get it again. Yeah, but isn't that, isn't that like if you've, if you've like, and I'm just going to go back to love because it's the easiest, like romantic love. If you've experienced certain types of relationships through your life, and then you're just like, I'm not going to do that kind of thing again. Like this kind of person isn't like if you have a pattern of a certain type of person that you've been dating that's unhealthy, isn't it kind of useful to be like that type of person? Well, I guess it's it's not that they don't deserve love, is that they don't deserve to be in a relationship with you. Exactly. But also, it's possible that there's room for redemption for them personally, but that's a different story. You have the right to not offer yourself to be wounded again. However, if we judge a person's worthiness right. and that they're not worthy of love, we're not considering as well that it's possible we didn't grow up with love. So now we don't expect love because deep, deep within us, we don't know what that looks like or what that feels like. And we've made an assumption quite often that we don't deserve love. So why would we work on a project where the main ingredient is love? Why would we work on that project when it's completely something we've never witnessed or experienced? Right. Unless you see it at work somewhere else. You know, and that's why I'm really in awe of what Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see dot, dot, dot in love. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, now when you put it that way, do you see how you are filled with energy? You're like, I could try that. I'll try it with this person, this person, this person. And to your point, yeah, wisdom, love doesn't work without wisdom. So like, don't go in the lion's cage when it's hungry and say, I love you, kitty cat. Yeah. I love you. Maybe it will work, but you might just end up being a meal because you're not using wisdom about who to love. Right. Yeah. I guess that was my big thing. You have to be wise about where you invest your love and how, but that doesn't mean that you compromise who you are in that love, right? <laughs> yeah, but if love really is the ingredient to making everything happen, everything, like even social justice happen, social justice can't happen without love at the base of those laws. Mm -hmm. Some aspect of love has to be a part of it. The love for people, the love for righteousness, the love for right doing and right action and love for restorative justice, so many things, love for humanity. And even people who do harm intentionally are actually revealing how ignorant they really are. Mm -hmm. They haven't been educated about the real number one law, love first. Right. If we could just see the world that way, we would identify people very quickly. Like, oh, who I will work with, who I don't think is time to work with. Or who should be in this position and who shouldn't. Hmm. Yes. 
I love that, you know, you've experienced that a lot by creating, building, and running your own business. You've had to hire many people from the beginning of your business, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that you didn't see their capacity, but sometimes you had to let people go when they didn't see their capacity. And they just weren't able to participate. Right. Oh, that's the hardest. It's the hardest. You want to develop that love with everybody, but in its proper context, you know, like, I think sometimes we confuse the secret in the sauce kind of love, you know, the secret ingredient to anything. I think we confuse it with how you express it appropriately with each person. It's not going to be the same. Right. Well, too, like in that kind of situation, you just feel like if you provide the environment where there's so much love or you just expose them to the most love that they they'll transform. And that's not always true. And I think that's the hard part, because if they're not open to it or if they don't see themselves in it, or maybe they have something about what they deserve, what they don't deserve or whatever else is going on, I don't know. Not that it doesn't make a difference because you don't really know, but it might not have the outcome that you anticipate. So what do you do? What would that look like if you put love first? I don't know. I guess it just means that that person isn't willing to meet you there. And it may never happen. Right. And you saw the potential. Yeah. But it is sad. It is. And I think it's difficult because it probably, I know for me, it sometimes... It takes me to certain places, like about my value and my power. I'm like, why? Well, maybe I'm not as magical as I thought I was, or maybe I'm not, <laughs> you know, as blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. so it, depending on where you're at, I think it could create, like for me, it's always that I'm not enough of whatever. I think that we have to be, there's, it's so many nuances. Like you have to be so clear about yourself and be in such a place about what you're offering and what you're getting back and that what it's actually reflective of and where the person's at and where you're at. Yeah, I think that's so important. And it is a perfect segue to something that Dalai Lama said. He said, even in love, we should focus on compassion for the other. Mm. Passion for ourselves and compassion for the other, even in love. Why would that be necessary? Maybe it's that awareness that even in that great love that you have for anyone or for any reason or any circumstance, they're not going to be perfect. You are not going to be perfect. There's there's going to be a need to exercise compassion for how uh, it's interpreted, how they carry it out with you. Yeah. You know, um, that quote of Abdul Baha's that says, where there is love, Nothing is too much trouble and there is always time. Mm -hmm. Well, something I was thinking about, he doesn't say when you're in love, nothing is too much trouble. Mm -hmm. It's (laughs) just where there's love. Where there is, nothing is too much trouble. So that to me means love is an entity by itself. And anything can be, it can be used in any context, in any situation, can be applied And more things than we have attributed love capable of transforming or being a transformative element. And if it's the greatest commodity in the universe, then maybe we need to be changing our entire perception about 
what is love and what is too much trouble. Mm-hmm. Because then we haven't given due time to developing the foundation of love first, regardless of what the situation is, regardless. I know that if we get to the essential love in that dynamic, with those elements, those people, those circumstances, those laws, those cultures, then something else will be an outcome. There will be a new and different sustainable outcome. And so I wonder, it's kind of paradoxical that the quote talks about that there is always time when you set that precedent. So how come we never even go to, you know, square A? Let's make the time for that. Mm, I think everyone could believe in a world that did that. But do you think that we trust love? Because, I mean, you've talked about this before about how love is associated with the feminine and how we've never trusted the feminine before. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we trust everything in society that we trust is very linear. It's associated with the masculine, has to be counted and measured. And love is like abstract and intuitive and it's more associated with the feminine qualities. And we've never trusted the feminine. I mean, since the what do you call it? The sin of Eve? Original sin concept? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's like from that time. So if we don't really trust love, and I mean, I feel like a lot of people don't, or there's so much about like, well, love isn't enough. And where does that come from? And how is that different? So I love that. I mean, I could explore that with you like a slumber party mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think history has carried that misnomer from the beginning that Mm -hmm. the feminine, the archetypical feminine that gives birth and creates and renews and builds endlessly with society's building blocks. The feminine does that. It builds, it nurtures, it protects, it shields. We don't trust it because of things that have been handed down that are not true. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I wonder about that story of Eve and its interpretation. Why is it we've only taken the one masculine interpretation? There are many. If you look at mystical uh, Christianity, mystical Catholicism, there are so many different beautiful views that have gotten unpacked about who Eve really was because She came from Adam's rib. So she's the next evolution. She Mm -hmm. learned what he learned. And she is the evolution of Adam. Like, wow, that's incredible. Of course, it would be different then. It wouldn't be the twin of Adam, you know. And these Adam and Eve are metaphors. They're huge archetypical metaphors. Uh, And I wonder why we still haven't taken it further since I've still heard people express the same views that have been expressed for forever about original sin and not seeing that evolution means we have to ask questions and we also have to understand consequences. Mm. And in the proverbial Eden before, evolutionarily speaking, we were not capable of asking questions. So we ask questions today as a virtue, because that's how we get answers. So if someone has trouble, we want to ask all the questions we can scientifically 
so we can get to solutions. I, to me, that's what the feminine represents. Mm-hmm. So I do think that we've assigned the feminine love, but that's also because the masculine in adopting a linear pose to success can find a way to exclude love because it's considered ambiguous, nebulous, something that you cannot scientifically assess in an empirical manner. And maybe that's not the question. Maybe it's what happens to love when it attains adaptations. Mm. Forms could be created from the original, if you will, formula. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't produce the same outcome because there are limitless outcomes. So I think that, you know, in a sorry to get all geeky on you and now my nerd head, but that's yeah. what I think a lot about and why actually there is such a big chasm today between masculine and feminine as the gifts of humanity, the archetypes, instead of understanding and assigning roles and gender. We're just tired of that. We just can't go there again. Yeah. But we can go with understanding that we are archetypes and all that we have the privilege of introducing. I think love is really has been assigned to nomads land because we're afraid of what will happen if we unleash it. We're yeah. It's so I love true. your view of radical love with in your marriage too. I love that you, that takes so much courage. I think it takes a real radical love to say you've hurt me, you've disappointed me. And now I'm going to give you all the love I have. We'll see what that does. Then you get unlimited chances. Yeah. It's actually the only place I've ever really, I don't know if that's true, but it's kind of the a place that I've found myself practicing that a lot because in any other relationship, it's so much easier to just leave. <laughs> mm. now, but in the context of a marriage... You can't just leave as easily. You know, you've made a commitment to somebody or you've created a a space and its own entity, if you will. It's kind of cool because initially it's like, oh, this is the hardest thing. But then when you realize that you have options and, and that could be one of them, it's really cool. It also makes me think about this, this concept of unconditional love, you know, and maybe it's because you know, you're raised on like Disney and we I've watched so many like different examples of things. And it's like this like unconditional sort of thing. And, you know, I always felt like my parents in that bond, like or in that relationship had unconditional love for me. And I started as I got older, I started to realize like, actually, it's not unconditional. <laughs> it's kind of conditional. You know, it could be like my mom or my dad or whatever might not like something that I'm doing and might decide to not speak to me anymore or to cut ties with me, which is a really hard thing because you think that that's your family and these are familial ties, especially in Persian culture where it's so hardcore and like blood is thicker than water and it's like very mafia, (laughs) like godfather style. But I remember when I realized that, and at the same time, I feel like I was really questioning who the creator was to me and what the creator was and 
I realized I was like, wow, that my creator is actually my source of unconditional love. And I could do anything. I could choose anything. And the creator would still love me. And I think that having sort of like, even though I don't trust that or I don't believe it, I have other like things like core lore beliefs that get in the way of that sometimes. I think just even intellectually knowing that and trying to practice that, it's so helpful to this greater concept of like being the change or love because you know that everything here is conditional. You know, even though, and, you know, I may try to practice love every day and everything that I do in my marriage with my friends, but I may wake up on the wrong side of the bed and I might not even be able to practice it. But I know that at least it's flowing from the creator to me at all times. And there's something so sustaining about that and something so that makes me feel so like taken care of because it reminds me I'm just a human and other people are just human and that maybe we're incapable of being unconditional in some way and that that's only reserved for the creator to us. But we can practice. Yes, that's the thing. It's not a moment of enlightenment or a it's not even, we don't even, I don't even know if it's achievable, maybe maybe for some people. Mm. Well, I love that it's a practice. I love what you shared about how it makes you feel when you came into the awareness that the creator has unconditional love for you. Mm. And for myself, it is a tremendous, it, it kind of retrains me, reorganizes me. Uh, with the relief I feel of reminding myself that the creator is unconditionally loving towards everyone, even those who have hurt me. That part, oh my God, that part. See, I had gotten to that first part maybe like years and years and years ago, and I didn't didn't even get close to getting to that part until this year, actually. I was like, whoa, mind blown. And I don't know why. I hadn't thought about that, but... Did something bring that to your mind? You did. You did. You shared that. And I was like, wow, it's so true. Like the person that just like, I think is the most vile, cruel person, the creator loves them too, just as much as he loves me unconditionally. Who am I to make any judgment? Mm -hmm. About what they deserve, that they don't love. They don't deserve your love, but they do deserve the love of the creator. Yes. And that's where the greatest love could make whatever reformation must take place, you know. And maybe that will never happen with that person, but you know that they're well taken care of the whole time. That also means you have to feel a comfort and ease and a strange happiness that they're care of too to the best of their ability to listen to be open to receive that's everything yeah really everything and i also think that's the beginning of us understanding uh, what real justice might look like just a hair's breadth closer to the real justice justice isn't poetic justice you know where those people hurt me wronged me 
whatever it is that they did, and they deserve X, Y, and Z. Now it's like, I hope they get so loved that it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I hope they get so saturated in love that like their compass is changing. And now that arrow is going to go in a different direction. Who knows what will happen? Have you ever met anybody who's who has a really despicable history, but they are like the love machine all by themselves now? Not personally, but I've I've read about some. Mm, I think there's nothing like that to know that redemption is possible here. Mm-hmm. It's inebriating. Because yeah. then you're like, oh, I want that magic wand. <laughs> I want to go around. Most of the time, it's somebody that goes through something really hard or bad or whatever. I hate to use the word bad, but it's usually somebody that goes through a life-changing thing or goes through it, experiences a death, and then in that vulnerability, wakes up to something. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why people are very drawn towards adult near-death experiences where the individual learned that they were not living their purpose. I really, really encourage anybody who wants to hear like the darker side of near-death experiences to read the story about Reverend Howard Storm and uh, his negative near-death experience. And but how it literally revolutionized who he was. And I think that's so important that people can learn. In his own words, he said he was a real piece of work. He -hmm. said he wasn't nice to anybody, not even his wife. Wow. And afterwards, he said it just reordered the way he saw everything. I mean, he went from being a professor in art to becoming a reverend. You know, he went to seminary school. He didn't even believe in anything spiritual prior to that. So what brings that kind of love where it's not even self-love, it's not even love for your wife, but love for a community of people, a love, you know, how can that happen? Yeah. I think we need to know it's possible. It also makes me think of, I mean, I haven't read the Reverend's story, but it makes me think of Danny and Brinkley. What was his job? He was like a sniper. For the government? A hired sniper and assassin for the CIA. And he had killed tons of people. But what's so cool is afterwards, he started an organization to balance out what he had done called the CIA and Compassion in Action. And his mission was let no person die alone. So he acknowledged that it was like a reverse or the opposite of his true purpose Mm. taking people to death prematurely rather than helping people not fear death Mm. we did have a mission with death just not taking them there yeah i love that and sushi i'm so glad you brought that up because i think the same is true with love i think we are all here to love someone some people and practice the art of it until the day we die. And we must never give up the practice. And I think it's okay to have love for everyone, mm-hmm. but not feel like you have to directly love everyone. You have to use discernment and recognize 
who it's productive with and who it isn't, who yes. will bring out your purpose and who will diminish it. Yeah. And who you do that for. Yes. Uh, that's and what friendship is about. You can really feel the difference with people. Like if you start to question yourself, like who brings out my love, like really brings it out more or that side of me and who brings out the opposite. And maybe I if they bring that. out the opposite, it's not a match. <laughs> It's not a match and that's not a problem. Yeah. There's no way you're going to have a match with almost 8 billion people on one planet. Does this allow me to express what I understand I'm here to do? Right. That's a tough question. But if it doesn't, it requires that sobriety to say, I am not going to be pulled into somebody else's version of me. Yeah. I think it's also cool to know that some loves are for a certain period of time and for a certain reason or purpose and that they can change. You know, like for me, ever since I've been pregnant, I've realized so many things about that form. And I think maybe it's because I'm carrying another human. And so it's not just about my love and the way that I practice love, but it's about me protecting something inside of me that might might have different needs than me or might need more of my love. I like I've realized that there's a lot of people that I feel I take care of maybe or and I just don't have the capacity to do that anymore. So I can't practice my love with them in the same way. And it made me sad initially, but then I was like, well, but this is just where I'm at right now. And I'll have to continue my practice at a later time in a different way, or maybe with different people, mm -hmm. or maybe figure out what that practice looks like with this new human, you know? Yes. And also that's kind of um, an indicator of what the exchange of love is with people, because we are always changing. Like people go through ill health or people go through a loss of a job or uh, loss of a partner. Are you still friends with them or not? What yeah. What's the bond? Is it Was it really about them and you or was it about their circumstance? Right. Now that you're pregnant, you already, you have less energy. You have less capacity to do things for people. Now you'll notice who has patience with that and wisdom and still plugged into you. And in fact, giving you more love and what people are going to continue to demand that you carry on as you were before. That's right. really helpful to see. You it's know? so helpful. It's so yeah. clarifying. Yeah. I think especially with pregnancy, I noticed myself that is when I, I don't know if I'd say I lost friends, but I would say that our bonds drifted because they could not actually, they couldn't see me in that new role and that new purpose that they couldn't relate to me anymore. Yeah. Even though I wasn't about to stop talking about everything we did and just talk about diapers, uh, well, that wasn't going to happen. But nevertheless, they they were so uncomfortable that I didn't really allow them to join into like a whole nother chapter, a whole nother commonality. They couldn't do it. So I love that the love we have for each other could still be there, but it may not have a place to express itself. Yeah. Oh, Swisha, I love the way you articulate things. So good and clear. 
Oh, I just love this topic. Uh, <laughs> look at it in an institutionalized framework. Like yeah. how we be the love we want to see in the world in different arenas and like interview different experts in those fields and talk about what would it look like if love were part of your syllabus? What yeah. would it look like if love was in your chemical compound? You know, I have noticed an increase in like, what would you call maybe the natural foods phenomenon of companies, small companies? Uh, I feel like, especially where you live, oh my gosh, you have so many amazing food companies started by an individual who had a story about, you know, what they couldn't eat and all of a sudden they wanted to make it with love. Mm-hmm. and change people's options. And now they make a comfort food, but a comfort food without all the harmful things. Do you notice how many people add love as one of their primary ingredients? Yeah, and it's real. It's real. And people will say, you can taste it. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I think that goes across the board in terms of like what we do with our lives. Mm. If you really love what you do, it really is so much more transformative and it comes through the product. It comes through everything. And you are very clear on who doesn't love doing what they do because you don't want to do it with them. (laughs) That's true. You don't want to do it with them. You don't want the product they make. Nope. Whatever their event is, you don't want to go, even if it's five-star. So true. I really love that. There used to be, you know those things, I think they called them salons, like parlor conversations. I think it was very popular at turn of the century in the like late 1800s to early 1900s. And people would have like guests uh, and a discussion and then they'd serve tea or whatever, dinner. But I love that concept. And I read about this uh, family in Teaneck, New Jersey, who lived in this tiny cottage. But it was a cottage that was left over in undeveloped land. And all the houses around them were mansions. But they had these salons. And yeah. we invite people. And they said that their neighbors from the mansions preferred to meet at their house (laughs) and to transfer the salon to their big mansion. And they asked them one time, why do I just love coming over to your house? And this couple looked at each other and looked at them. They were like, maybe it's because we love having you. I think it works. Oh, smishy. Well, I love having you and I love having all our guests. Sharing on these conversations. Me too. It's been a special joy to engage in the most optimistic and informative explorations mm-hmm. of world peace and how people play their part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sushi. Thank you, Sushi. Well, I'll see you next time. Bye, Sushi. Bye, Sushi. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. 